listening. I hope that you are getting some time off this week and that you're able to spend it with your family and also listening to this podcast. So thank you for that. Uh, I'm super excited about today's guest. So I know a lot of times on this podcast, we talk about permanence and we've also talked about how the foster care system has really focused their time and attention lately on reunification, that reunification is the number one goal and that we really need to be supporting biological families and getting their children back. And I would have been the one to champion that, you know, I would have said, absolutely, we need to get kids back with their home of origin with their parents of origin, if that's possible in any way. But today's guest is going to tell us, make the argument that this is not a framework or a perspective that lends well to the children in most cases or in a lot of cases. So uh, the law says that if a parent is not making progress on their plan within 15 months, that they should the state should be moving for termination of parental rights. But because there is such a heavy uh, goal and focus on reunification now, we're seeing that time get lengthened and more and more uh, court rulings are really there to accommodate the parents more than the kids. And that actually has a really detrimental impact on the kids. So Naomi Riley is our guest today and she is a journalist and she has actually been able to go in and do a bunch of this research that this whole show was even built for. So she's been able to go investigate the court system. She's been able to investigate foster parents. She's been able to investigate individual agencies that are working on the foster care crisis. And she has come to some really strong opinions about where the foster care system is failing. So she is a former column columnist for the New York Post and the former Wall Street Journal editor and writer. She's an author to seven books. The one that's most important to this work and uh, most relevant to this audience in her newest book is No Way to Treat a Child, How the Foster Care System, Family Courts, and Racial Activists Are Wrecking Young Lives. Uh, you know, I was wondering if I was going to agree with her on all of her opinions, but you know, she makes a great, great case. So the foster care system, like many of our other systems tend to do big pendulum swings anytime, uh, we want a correction. And I feel like for the reunification goal, again, we've done a big pendulum swing and she really makes the argument how... A child really needs to be given the opportunity to create permanence in a new home. That means parental rights need to be terminated so that they can be adopted uh, if they're eligible, especially if they're young, if parents are not going to be able to fulfill their plan or care for that child appropriately in a reasonable amount of time. She also reminds us that these parents, although they probably endured trauma themselves, have abused and neglected their kids to the point of removal from their custody and to have a kid continue to see and visit with their biological parent who has caused this trauma for two, three years while decisions are being made really stunts the attachment process that they could be making with a healthy family. So Naomi is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute focusing on issues regarding child welfare as well as a senior fellow at the Independent Women's Forum and I'm excited for you all to meet her today. Here's Riley. 
I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast. I started this podcast to understand from all perspectives how we can help end the foster care crisis. The overwhelming response was we need to support our local communities. Unwanted, abandoned, orphaned children are the community's responsibility. We must support, guide, love, invest, raise up generations that will nurture, love, and support their own children to end this crisis. So the purpose of this podcast is to build an army of people that are interested and willing to take responsibility of our foster youth and who are supportive of foster and adoptive families. This is the on-ramp for people who want to get involved but might not know where to start. I want this to be a place where community members feel like they can make a difference, where they feel good enough to make that difference, and believe that they can be a big deal in the life of a child. Thanks for being part of our community and make sure to join the conversation in the Stable Moments podcast Facebook group. Together, we can end the foster care crisis. Thank you so much, Naomi, for joining us on the Stable Moments podcast. Uh, I just want you to jump right in and if you could introduce yourself and uh, give us a little bit of your background. Sure. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's great to talk to you. So I'm a journalist by training. Um, I spent a long time working at the Wall Street Journal and New York Post, among other publications, but I've written for a lot of other publications as well, from the New York Times, the Washington Post. Um, And um, a few years ago, I actually wrote a book about American Indians, and um, it sort of led me to um, basically a lot of different territories in this country. And American Indians have some of the worst child welfare outcomes of any community in this country. I don't, I don't know how familiar your listeners are, but um, you know, some of the highest rates of child abuse um, and um, really difficult time finding uh, foster homes and adoptive homes for kids who've experienced some pretty severe abuse and neglect. Um, and I just don't think our laws are doing a very good job of helping the situation either. But um, when I was done with that research, I really wanted to understand in kind of the larger context of foster care um, in this country, like what what did what did all the rest of the communities look like um, when it came to our child welfare system? And so, about you know four or five years ago, I really started delving into this topic. Um, I uh, traveled all over the country looking at different things from kind of the front end of child welfare, trying to understand like how we determine which kids are at risk, um, all the way through to, um, you know, removal for foster care and and, uh, possibly adoption as well. Um, So now I work at the American Enterprise Institute, which is a public policy think tank. Um, And this month I put out a book called No Way to Treat a Child. Um, And it's really kind of an overview of what is ailing our child welfare system. Um, And you know, spoiler alert, I think the biggest problem is that our child welfare system is kind of revolving around the needs of adults and not the best interests of children. Mm. Tell me a little bit about what your research looked like. You know, how did you collect all that data? Who did you go to? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's a it's a pretty broad topic. Um, uh, you know, just to kind of give readers like a sense of uh, you know what what it looks like from kind of the thirty thousand foot view. Um, there are about three million calls that come in every year uh, to child abuse hotlines and other authorities reporting child abuse or neglect. Um, about seven or eight hundred thousand of those are substantiated, meaning we have some evidence that there was abuse or neglect going on. That doesn't mean that the rest of the cases, you know, nothing happened in. It just means that we don't have enough evidence to say one way or another for sure. 
Um, there are about uh, 440,000 kids who are in the foster care system, um, you know, at, at a point in time, let's say today, but over the course of the year, there'll probably be about 600,000 children who are kind of in or out of the system, you know, kind of uh, having been removed from their families for some period of time. Um, and there are about 2,000 child maltreatment fatalities, uh, tragically, that happen in this country as well. Um, so, you know, what I was trying to figure out, like I said, at the beginning, I think I, I really want to understand how we deal with those 3 million calls. Like what is, what is going on? How do we understand, for instance, like what the difference is between somebody calling to say, like, I think my neighbor left their kid in the car while they ran to the dry cleaner for five minutes. Um, and, you know, I think my neighbor's child is in like serious, you know, um, perhaps life-threatening danger. And that's kind of the, the challenge of many of these hotlines is sort of how to sort that out. So one of the first uh, things that I wrote about, which I think is really interesting and I wish would spread more throughout the country, is the use of predictive analytics um, in our in the front end of our foster care system. So, you know, this is like money ball for child welfare. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of information about kids in the child welfare system. Um, we know, for instance, like if a child hasn't shown up for school in the last few weeks, um, or if, uh, you know, the heat has been turned off in their house, or um, if the, you know, a recently incarcerated person has moved back into that home. And so using all that data, we can actually um, get a risk score on a child. This does not, does not absolutely tell us um, whether or not a child has been abused um, or who did it or anything like that, but it does tell us how quickly we need to send out someone to investigate. So it allows us to do a better job of stewarding the resources, the limited resources that we have in child welfare um, to help the kids who are most vulnerable and most at risk. So that was kind of, um, you know, I, I spent some time looking at that. Um, there's a pilot program that does that in Pittsburgh, which is really interesting. Um, I also spent a lot of time like looking at kind of non-governmental solutions uh, to the foster care system too. Um, I spent a lot of time with different, uh, you know, kind of civil society, some faith-based programs that were really, I think, revolutionizing the way we do foster care and adoption in this country. Um, and that's really happened. It's been a really dramatic change over the last 10 or 15 years uh, or so, um, primarily driven by uh, large evangelical churches or other faith-based organizations. And, um, you know, just to kind of give your listeners a sense of like what, what they're doing differently. Um, mm -hmm. The first thing is, you know, many people are probably familiar with that. Like, you know, you put up a picture of a kid on the nightly news and say like, hey, anybody want this kid? Um, it turns out, not surprisingly, that's not a really effective way of finding a family for a child, mm -hmm. either temporarily or permanently. Um, and so what a lot of pastors started to do was they would go into their congregations and say, you know, there are five or six kids in our zip code tonight who need homes. Um, and what are you going to do about it? And that was a whole different ask. It was much more immediate and direct. And you're reaching an audience that really cared about this issue. The second thing they did was they changed the way we train foster families. Um, and that I think was been so important. Um, the way, you know, kind of most state or county governments was going, were going about it was, you know, you would, you would often have to wait months, um, you know, for a training. Sometimes you would call and volunteer and no one would ever call you back. Um, so you'd wait months for a training, um, you know, it'd be an inconvenient place. Um, and the information they were giving was important, but not everything you needed to know. Like, you know, they would tell you how many fire extinguishers you needed in your house, 
but not how to deal with a severely traumatized kid who's who's come into your home. So that mm-hmm. that was obviously, you know, kind of a whole different story. And some of these um, faith-based programs, like there was one I visited in New Orleans called Crossroads NOLA, um, really adopted um, a, a, a curriculum around trauma-informed care that not only did they use to train their foster parents, but now they're offering that training to caseworkers um, and child protective services to um, people in juvenile courts to teachers um, just to really understand how the brain of some of a child who's been traumatized operates and so that that was a huge thing and the third and last thing that I think these did um, these uh, organizations did was they supported foster parents in a way that's so important. Mm-hmm. About half of foster parents quit within the first year. Um, And many of them say, you know, it's not because of the behaviors of the child. um, It's because of the terrible way that they're treated by the system. Mm. Um, They're often treated like, you know, glorified teenage babysitters. Um, Even when they go into family court, judges are not interested in what they have to say, even though they've probably spent more time with this child in the last few months or even years than anyone else has. So finding a support system um, in your community was really vital for these families. Um, They um, actually started offering training to supporters. Um, Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to volunteer for foster care, for instance, like this is, there's a group in Colorado called Project 127 um, that really pioneered this that said, you know, if you want to do foster care training through us, you should actually bring four of your closest friends or family members, and we are going to train them too. Um, and so those people could do respite care then, for instance, um, you know, or, or all sorts of other things, you know, just even kind of emotionally supporting the foster parents um, because they had a better understanding of what they were going through was really important. So a lot of my travels for the book really um, examine some of these innovative programs and talk about how we could spread them. Yeah, so that's awesome. And I'm, I, I, it's my experience. And I love the fact that grassroots efforts are the ones that are starting to get it right and get that community support and reducing that isolation for foster parents and uh, doing the trauma based training for not just the foster parents, but for the whole community um, and offering them an opportunity to step up. So what's the uh, policy ask? Like if the government may or may not be getting it right and it seems like grassroots efforts or churches or smaller programs uh, are getting it right or are a better track, what's the, um, like how do you get that adopted at the policy level? Yeah. So I think the the policy level, there are two really important pieces of legislation uh, that we passed in this country, um, the federal legislation in the 1990s. And um, I am deeply disturbed that those pieces of legislation are regularly being ignored by Mm -hmm. state and county agencies and family courts. So the first one is called the Adoption and Safe Families Act. Um, And it basically, legislators at the time saw how that kids were languishing in foster care for a very long time. Um, Right now, the average amount of time in foster care is 20 months. Um, In states like New York, it's actually closer to 30 months. Um, And a significant chunk, like maybe 15 or 20% of the kids in care actually 
actually spending upwards of three years in the foster care system. And so this, you know, this was supposed to be temporary. Um, and so these legislators got together and they, it was bipartisan, and they said, you know, if a, if a child has been in care for 15 of the last 22 months, a state needs to start moving towards severing parental rights. Um, and it's because we know how much kids need that kind of permanent, safe, loving home um, and that are shuttling them back and forth between biological homes and among different foster homes is actually really bad for their development, um, mm -hmm. emotional, psychological, especially, you know, kids zero to three you know, the brain development, we know much more about this than they even knew in the 1990s, sure. um, how important that brain development is and the importance of forming a secure attachment to at least one adult who is going to meet your emotional and physical needs is so important. Um, and so unfortunately, you see all across the country, the Adoption Safe Families Act is not followed. Um, kids are left in care for much longer uh, than those 22 months. And, um, and I think it's having a very harmful effect. So the first ask would be, let's enforce that law. Um, let's make uh, family court judges enforce that law. Let's make agencies enforce that law. Um, the second piece of legislation, which was really important, is called the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act. And it basically said um, you can't discriminate on the basis of race when placing a child in for foster care or for adoption out of the foster care system. Um, and the reason that this law was passed was, again, these legislators saw how long especially Black children were staying in the foster care system. They just, um, you know, there was a, a statement that came out from the National Association of Black Social Workers that literally said, we would prefer kids, uh, Black kids be in congregate care facilities than be in a white family. And so, um, you know, this law said, no, these kids, you know, deserve a home no matter what their skin color is. And um, unfortunately, today, uh, not only do you have people who want to repeal that law um, because they think that, you know, white families who adopt are actively harming black children, mm -hmm. um, but you also have just a lot of kind of under the radar conversations that are going on, either sometimes openly in court or just kind of caseworkers whispering behind people's backs about, you know, oh, well, they're, you know, they, they won't know how to do that child's hair or something like that. They're not an appropriate placement. Um, and so again, I think the ask there would be like, let's enforce this law because tens of thousands more black children have been adopted since the 1990s as a result of law of that law as a result of saying no every child deserves this home and you know and for those of your listeners who are interested in the research um the research actually is very clear on this which is that you know every adoption means something you know bad happened beforehand like you know we all know that um you know something very difficult maybe even tragic preceded an adoption um but if you compare black children who were adopted by white families and black children who are adopted by black families and compare their outcomes on any number of levels um they're basically the same it's not you know you can talk, it's it's not that there's no conversation to be had, it's not that there might not be difficulties, but in terms of the long-term, you know, psychological, emotional, educational outcomes for these kids, the important thing is that we find them a family. Yeah, that's fair. So um, you might just need to be giving me a very basic civics lesson, but when a law is passed, so who enforces <laughs> these you know there i know that there's like enforcement branches yeah. and like judges and there's cops and stuff but when it's these big right. policy level um, right. you know infractions of the law like who's holding the government accountable there 
So about half of the money for foster care comes from the federal government. And unfortunately, you know, nobody wants to be in a position of saying, like, we're going to withhold foster care funds. It just looks bad. So even if you're not following the law and even if federal government and the agencies that are in charge, in this case, HHS, you know, knows what you're doing wrong is wrong. Um, they're really not they're going to be very reluctant to withhold money. Um, and so I think a lot of the change is going to have to come from individuals at the state level, um, state legislators legislators who are looking at what their child welfare agencies are doing and also looking at what their family courts are doing. I mean, you know, a lot of foster parents talk to me about the way family court seems to them more like a kangaroo court. Like they have no, you know, the it, the laws just seem so unclear to them. I mean, many of them don't know, for instance, that they have a right to speak up at most hearings mm -hmm. to be heard in open court. They don't really, you know, and, and judges will often say like, I'm, you're just a foster parent, you can't talk here. Um, so I think just making more people aware of what the laws are, that they can assert this, um, you know, making sure that family court decisions um, you know, can be overturned and reviewed the way any other court decision is reviewed and overturned, um, making sure that governors are appointing people to their child welfare agencies um, you know, who are willing to enforce these laws and making sure that legislators understand. Because you know, foster care is just, it's not a policy issue that's on the top of most people's agenda. You know, unless there's some kind of high profile fatality or something like that. But even then, I don't think most people understand how the system works. And so just making sure that we really educate, um, you know, state and local lawmakers about what the laws are. Yeah. Do you see there being use of new legislation that would like, you know, because of, of course, I'm not thinking poll funding, but thinking of like, you know, review committees or committees that are going to go in in each state and see, you know, how long are kids staying in um, and be able to at least evaluate and report back the needs or the why that's happening. D does that happen? Um, it does happen sometimes. I mean, there are some states that are introducing new forms of legislation. And I think because they're they're being passed at the state level and there is enough support for them, they might be more likely to follow them. So for instance, um, you know, Arizona recently passed a law that basically shortened the timelines um, for kids, uh, for babies who've been born substance exposed. So, you know, if a child has been born with say opioids in their system, you know, Arizona is basically giving that mother one year uh, to clean up her act. And if she does not, if she's not clearly on the path to getting clean, um, then they're going to move to sever parental rights. They're not waiting for the 15 months or the 22 months. They're just right. saying a year is enough time. You know, we're really worried about the development of this child. And, and so this has to happen. So I think there's some, um, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing about the Adoption Safe Families Act that says, you know, that that's kind of the 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 federal kind of minimum, but states can always say we want to do this faster. Um, I do think that there's probably uh, you know room for if a governor wanted to appoint you know a committee to review how well states are doing along these measures. I mean, it's interesting because I, they don't have to do a ton of research in the sense that the federal government is actually collecting this information. Like we know for an average state, how long a child stays in foster care. We know how many kids in that state were adopted. We know how long it took for them to be adopted. Like all these, these pieces of information are readily available to the public. Um, it's just a question of why isn't anyone doing anything about them? Yeah. And, and like funding the 
funding asking the question or funding the evaluation of those programs and then understanding what resources are needed because i'm i'm guessing it's a resource issue yeah well um yes and no i mean um you know first for some of these agencies they really um you know probably the hardest question to ask in child welfare is how long should a parent get to rehabilitate I mean, I, I don't think people think about it in those terms, but, you know, we we decide, for instance, that a child does not belong in a home, that they're unsafe because of abuse or severe neglect. Um, more often than not, um, substance abuse is an issue in these homes. Um, and we know how hard it is to treat addiction. Like if you just ask somebody outside of the child welfare context, like, you know, is there a magic program that's automatically going to get someone clean in 30 days? Most people look at you like you had three heads. Um, but in the child welfare context, like we take a child away and then say, oh, here, you do this like anger management program or this, you know, 30 day addiction program, and then we'll just give the child back. Um, and so this often goes on and on, like with children going back and forth multiple times because we feel badly for the adults. Um, and by the way, we should feel badly for the adults. Like they've often been through very difficult circumstances. Um, you know, they may have been abused themselves. They may have been in the foster care system, foster care system themselves. Um, like I said, they may suffer from addiction. They may, um, you know, have be living in poverty, um, you know, all sorts of problems. But the question is, we still have to weigh that sympathy that we have for these adults against what is in the best interest of children. And that was sort of what I was saying that, you know, the book's theme is really about how, you know, so much of our decisions in child welfare agencies and family courts revolve around what the adults want and not what's necessarily in the best interest of kids. Yeah, so when you're saying that um, like individual states might feel badly for an adult, and so are what are what you're seeing is that they will extend that 15 months because, well, now mom's in her second rehab and we're gonna at least give her a chance to get out of this one. And yes, absolutely. They the caseworkers now see their primary goal, and and not just that it's their primary goal, but it's kind of this overriding ideology that I think affects these agencies is family preservation and family reunification. So you could absolutely, you know, say to most people, well, doesn't it make sense to keep a child with their family? And most people would say like, of course, that's the most common sense thing in the world. Um, but these are families who we need to think about in a different category because they've already, you know, committed harm against their children or demonstrated that they're incapable or unwilling uh, to take care of their children. And so then we have to ask some, some questions about whether that's really the best placement for a child is remaining with that person. Um, and I sometimes compare it to our attitude toward domestic violence. I mean, if, you know, a woman is being, you know, beaten by her husband or boyfriend and, you know, um, police show up, you know, their first question is not like, how can we get you guys back together? But frankly, that's the first question that people are asking when they're interfering in these in intervening in these child welfare mm -hmm. cases. And I think that, you know, we need to kind of take a step back and say, like, no, the, the first job of child protection is just is protecting the child. And they're not there to represent the whole family. They're not there to rehabilitate the parents. Not again, not that we shouldn't be trying to rehabilitate the parents. But I think that the role of child welfare has kind of become watered down by this idea that they're supposed to be helping the whole family, not just the child. 
Yeah, that's really interesting because I would have said that I, you know, love the idea of putting permanency first. And I would have said that, you know, we should give biological parents as much chance, but I agree with you that, or I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what I think I'm hearing is, you know, that permanency can be the goal, but at some point you, there is a line in the sand. I mean, at some point, the 15 months or whatever it is on the books, and I get that it's not a black and white issue, but at some point we need to be making that decision. And you're right. When I think of biological parents, um, so often I put myself in like the trauma that they've had, um, you know, that they may be having a rough time with substance abuse and, you know, whatever, which is a symptom of their trauma. Um, but you're right. There are plenty of people that have their kids taken away that there were really some unsafe dynamics going on um, that would be difficult to treat within a short amount of time, a year, year and a half. Um, and and for super young children, I mean, that is such a significant portion of their lives. And I, one of the things I talk about when I'm talking about family court is how family court seems to operate more like on a, on an adult timeline than on a child's timeline. Like if you say to a three-year-old, like, we'll hear this case again in six months, that is a huge portion of that child's life that you're just kind of frittering away while you're waiting for this, you know, bureaucracy or waiting for the parent to figure things out or um, whatever. I mean, you know, as a as a parent, you know, you see how much development goes on in those months for young children. Like, you know, you could say, oh, well, when a child is, you know, 10 or 12 or something like that, and we're not as worried about their safety in, in a certain context. Like, we know that a 10-year-old can go find help if something is going wrong in their home. Um, you know, they know when their parent is not giving them food, they're going to school on a regular basis basis. Um, but with infants and toddlers, I mean, we don't, we don't have that backup plan and there's so much development that's going on in those months and years that I just think those timelines actually should be faster than for older kids, you know, who, you know, may, may, you know, obviously have a different kind of attachment to their parents too. I mean, they've lived in that house for a very long time. Um, but also because, um, we're not as worried about them. I mean, a lot of the, you know, the most significant percentage of the child maltreatment fatalities in this country are happening with very young children. Yeah, yeah. And um, when you were saying that uh, Arizona was pushing for 12 months, um, if a baby was born addicted, I mean, 12, the first year of a child's life is a long time to be in limbo um, and to be moved a bunch of times if, if that's the case. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just, um, you know, we, we need to sort of, like I said, just kind of keep the, the child's um, best interest and the child's timeline really at the heart of this um, discussion. And, um, you know, and, and just sort of say, like, we, we do care about these adults and we want to offer them as much as possible. Um, but at some point, you know, we, we have to say, we, we need them to be fully there. Um, and we can't just, you know, the, the, all of the trauma of all the different placements that kids experience, you know, you, um, you know, it, it's for those young children, like that they, um, you know, don't, are not able to depend on an adult to like, to meet their needs. I mean, this was, you know, this is what we used to talk about with, you know, the, um, you know, the orphanages in Eastern Europe, you know, that, 
the the babies would learn not to cry because they knew no one was coming. Um, and so you have that, you know, on the same level in some of these homes. And and like I was saying about substance abuse, I mean, that's so much of what is driving this. And, you know, for parents of young children, um, you know, this is it's it's just important to remember, like what how constant the need for attention is to a baby, like how often, you know, when that, I mean, <laughs> this, the, the first, you know, few months of that child's life, like how, how many times a day you are feeding and burping and rocking and changing and to have a parent who is not fully present um, is, is not only like bad for that child's development, but it can be dangerous. I mean, even think about like, you know, when my children were younger and, you know, they would, they would have a fever and, you know, you take them to the doctor and the doctor would be like, well, they're sick and you need to monitor this. Like you need to, you know, take the baby's temperature every few hours. You need to like give them Tylenol every few, you know, and it's something that's where it's, you know, you, you can't get a full night's sleep, like let alone decide, oh, I'm just going to go get high for a few hours. Um, and so I just, you know, to, for parents to understand these cases are what's called neglect. They're not abuse. But a lot of people think like, well, if it's not actively, you know, a parent actively hitting a child or something, it's not that dangerous. The neglect cases are actually in many cases more dangerous because they imply that kind of inattention to young children. Yeah, absolutely. You're like, I have a, I have a four month old right now and I'm you know, up every two hours. And I, I can't imagine the, um, you know, I think about it being in this space. I think about it when he's crying and I'm like, Oh, I gotta go get him. I think like, what if he was just left? And like, I totally understand how traumatic it would be for him crying yeah. and crying. Even like, you know, of course me, my mama hearts, like even a few minutes is just like too much. Yeah. But so, so yeah, I, I get that in the, the, of course it would break anybody's heart to hear about babies that don't get that. But yeah, in that first, we know so much about that early development. So it's, it's really interesting to hear this about your work because I, I do think that the whole system is very much focusing on um, reunification reunification to the point where um, people that are coming into the foster care system, uh, people that are coming to foster, they're being shamed if they say they want to foster to adopt. Right. Because right. people are saying you shouldn't want to foster to adopt out of the foster care system because you should be wanting to do everything you can to get that um, child back to their biological parent. Um, right. And they're like, okay, but like, aren't there some that like might need to be adopted? And I'd like to do that. And why is that wrong? Right. right. No, no, they absolutely are ashamed about this. And, um, and I think for foster parents, like, you know, they, they, you know, eventually they find out that these timelines exist and then they're just amazed that nobody follows them. I mean, because I think that, you know, the foster parents I've met, you know, would be thrilled to find out that their child has a safe, you know, fam biological family to go back to. Like they would feel like I've done my job, like I'm sad to see this child go, but they would still feel like I've done, you know, I've done my part and 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 what they want is what's best for the child. The the tragic, you know, cases are and there's so many of these where I talk to foster parents and they say the child is going back and I would feel so I, I just feel so terrible because I, I don't think that this is a safe situation that they're going back to. And I feel like I've done my part for a few months to the extent that I could, 
but I don't think that anybody is looking out for this child now. And to me, like, not only does that, is that bad for the child, but I think if you want to sort of um, encourage foster parents to feel like they are helping and to be able to recruit good quality foster parents who are willing to throw themselves into this, you know, you can't treat them like this and you can't make them feel like they're a cog in a broken system that's just sort of part of this process of shuttling a child from one home to the next without a view toward what the long-term plan is here. Yeah, and it's it, it's too tough, right? It's you can't have a kid in your home without your heart getting affected and if you don't think you're if you don't think the outcomes are any better, there's really no incentive to take on the work. Yeah. yeah, that's so, okay. So it's, it's a lot, it's obviously, um, it's obviously broken. Um, what are the, are there silver linings? Like, are there things coming down the pike? I know you talked about this, uh, you know, this data driven triage, uh, system, yeah. which seems like if we have the data, we should use the data. I don't know if it's evidence-based and who knows if there's unintended consequences of using that data. Uh, but what do you see that's on the horizon that's, um, that, you know, is inspiring or positive? I think most, like most of the inspiring programs are the ones that I've talked about. They're like yeah. these, there are these um, mostly faith-based programs, although they're not entirely faith-based, but some of them are, um, you know, just the ways that we're recruiting and training and supporting foster families. I was at a really interesting community in Oklahoma over the summer called Pepper's Ranch. Um, and the sort of the guiding force behind that community is that, um, you know, oftentimes in foster care, it's hard to keep large sibling groups together. Mm -hmm. And so what Pepper's Ranch did is it sort of said to um, veteran foster parents, like people who've been fostering for a few years now, that if they're willing to kind of step it up and actually foster um, groups of siblings with like five or more kids, um, that they will be provided subsidized housing in this um, community um, in Oklahoma. And, um, and I visited there and it's just, it's a beautiful community and it just, you know, there's, there's so many, um, you know, families who are willing to do this. I mean, they all now have these like enormous homes with giant kitchens and like industrial size, you know, containers of cheese balls and like <laughs> and these, you know, giant vans that you used to see on, you know, TLC shows or something like that. But I mean, all of them really were moved by the idea that separating siblings is so terrible for kids um, in foster care, both for like the younger kids who were often, you know, felt like they were being cared for by their older siblings, but also for the older siblings who often felt like, you know, they were at a loss and like they felt terrible that there was nothing they could do um, to kind of help guide their younger siblings during this difficult time. Um, and so I would love to see more of that kind of community spread throughout the country. There are a couple of others that sort of look like that. It's it's pretty small. Um, it's uh, a lot of private donations uh, fund these homes. But it's a really, um, I just I just think, you know, there's so much room for innovation in this that I would like to see more of it. So is there room for the uh, these programs to, you know, develop case studies and have Fed dollars assigned to them because they're doing it better? 
Yeah. I mean, in some ways, yes. Although I, you know, I think that some of these programs are very reluctant to get too involved with the state, but that program is interesting because, you know, the, the families who are involved in it are, you know, are licensed by the state to provide foster care sure. and they have like still the direct relationship with the state or the agency that the state has contracted with. So the only thing that the private organization is providing is this, housing and also, you know, some, some of the services like, uh, you know, foster parents often have to like schlep to multiple appointments with kids and with large sibling groups, like you could imagine spending your entire day in the car. So they have, um, uh, you know, a lot of different uh, tutoring programs and therapy programs that are, that are kind of on the campus there. And they also, it's like, it is a ranch. So they actually have horses that the kids can ride and other extracurricular activities, which is really nice. So for that kind of program, like I don't see necessarily an infusion of federal dollars that's necessary to keep those programs, um, you know, really going. And I think that you could see how, you know, the the rules and regulations like that would be added to that with federal dollars might make people a little crazy. Mm -hmm. So um, you said that the courts, you know, you said that some parents feel like it's kangaroo court and that they're definitely set up for the adults. I just wanted to ask you about your opinion of how uh, guardian ad litem or CASA programs are doing. And do you feel like those are successful at giving the kid a voice and, or does the judge like listen to uh, court appointed, court appointed specialists? Um, you know, do they have some weight, their voice have some weight? Um, I think some, I think, you know, a lot of uh, definitely family courts are kind of overwhelmed and short staffed and it's not uncommon to, you know, find that a guardian ad litem like really hasn't talked to the kid or seen the kid at all. Like mm -hmm. they're just looking at a file and it's really hard to represent that kid's interest uh, that way. With CASAs, I think you have a lot more success just because they're volunteers. They're required to spend a few hours a week typically with the child, you know, depending on the age and everything. Um, but I have also seen kind of a worrisome trend in CASA organizations. Um, a few of them have started talking about how uh, they want CASAs to not just represent the child, but to represent the family in court. Mm -hmm. And again, I think this is sort of like a, um, a kind of slow um, kind of mission creep that's going on there. Like, I really think that the CASA should be there to just represent the interests of the child. And we have other people in the courtroom who are there to represent the interests of the, of the biological family, of the, you know, of kin, you know, whoever else wants to be there. But, you know, just one voice there for just the child, I think is so important. And I, and I worry about kind of uh, CASAs kind of moving in this direction. Yeah, and it's interesting because if the CASA is going to meet with the kid for two hours, um, I don't know, maybe it would be added to their caseload to then have to go meet with the family. They're not in the same spot, you know, the, the bio family and the kid. So Right. Well, some, sometimes the CASAs continue to meet with the kid even with their when they're in the bio family's home. Like mm -hmm. if a kid has gone back and forth sure. a bunch, that's possible. But yeah, I mean, it, it would be kind of an additional thing that's added to them. But but more importantly, like, you know, adults are just much more articulate than kids. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, it's just sort of, we've had much more practice talking. And, and so, you know, it's very easy to imagine how, you know, a CASA sitting there listening to the parent's story about what happened and why this, you know, as opposed to sort of trying to process, 
you know, what's happened with a young child or like really just observe the situation that they're in, um, you know, that, that they would be really influenced much more by what an adult is saying to them. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just very clear if your mission is to, you know, advocate for specifically the child, then you're not kind of biased by all of this other, all these other agendas. Right, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so what's one thing that you think, like, just a community member that's sitting in their car listening to this, and they're like, oh, gosh, this is horrible. Um, there's no hope. Um, Don't drive off the road. <laughs> yes. Uh, what what can they do you know like what what's the what's the call so um i mean obviously foster care is always the call but um but i think what's so interesting about a lot of these programs that are popping up is just the importance of supporting foster parents Mm -hmm. and creating a community where you know you can do respite care you can help build furniture or you know you can just pray for a family that's doing foster care just you know kind of really make yourself available and not just like a Hey, if you need anything, just call because as we know, people don't, don't do that. So, um, and also trying to create, um, environments in our community. Like a lot of foster parents talk to me about foster friendly churches. Like, what does Mm -hmm. that look like? Um, you know, sometimes it's a multiracial church, but more often than not, it just means, you know, we're okay sometimes when kids are acting out. I mean, we understand we're not going to point and stare and shame the mother and, you know, not controlling her child better, having like babysitting programs at these churches that, um, you know, provide for the needs of these kids. Like, it's just, it's so important that they be able to live that both for the foster parents and for the children to live as normally as possible in this situation, which is so abnormal. Um, and then I do think, you know, as much as I'm like irritated by the direction of some CASA programs, I think CASA is really important and volunteering through that gives you like a window into the system. But I also think, um, you know, the kind of kangarooish element is a little bit less likely to happen when you have kind of responsible, educated citizens who understand the system that are keeping an eye on what's going on. Like it, it does make it like less likely that all of this is just going to, you know, kind of um, go under the radar. And so I just, you know, both for the sake of the kids, but also for the sake of trying to fix the system, um, I'd love to see more people do CASA. Yeah, absolutely. And it just feeds in because it feeds into your church life and your community life because you're getting a a window into the system and then you're able to bring that awareness back. And like you were saying, so many foster parents quit. So if there is, even if you can't be a foster parent, if you can provide that community where a foster parent feels like they can continue to go, they can continue to be a foster parent, then that's so many more children potentially that you're serving even by just supporting and and making that supportive environment. And I, like you, have really seen a lot of churches step up in this charge and um, have done a beautiful job of of wrapping wrapping around these families. Yep, absolutely. Well, you have done a whole bunch of research and, and like, we need this. We need this level of like, people on the ground going in and investigating what, why are these problems the way that they are and, and what's working and um, what do we need to do? Uh, because we can sit all day, you know, at our computers thinking we have an opinion. Um, and that was one reason why I started the podcast was to like interview the cop that takes the kid out of the home and interview a judge and interview a foster kid and interview, because I just wanted to see from all angles, like yep, what's important. the problem here? So where can we get your book and where can we follow your work? 
Yeah. So you can, the book is called No Way to Treat a Child. You can get it on Amazon. There's a hardcover, there's a Kindle, there's an audio book, whatever, whatever you like. Um, and, uh, you know, you can follow my work. I'm, I have a, a webpage um, uh, at, at American Enterprise Institute where I have a scholar page. I also have a, um, a page that's uh, devoted to the book, um, No Way to Treat a Child book. Um, dot com. Uh, and, and there are also um, some really interesting stuff there, just videos that I've done with some of the families who are interviewed in the book. Um, maybe I'll send those to you too, and you can put them up with the podcast, because I just think it helps put a face to the names and face to the policies that, that we're talking about as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I will link all of that in the show notes. Um, if you're on socials, I'll tag you on those when we put this out. And Gosh, thank you so much. This is such a, you're like a wealth, wealth of knowledge. And I know when you're the one that's been on the ground, you're like, people need to know about this. So I'm so glad that you developed it into a book um, and that you're willing to do these, these podcasts and have these conversations because I think people, people want to know how they can help. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Enjoy. All right. Bye-bye. Well, you know, I love getting down to the root of the problem, and I think Naomi really had some great insights with her research into this issue. I really hope that you do go get a copy of her book so that you are better informed. Share this episode with anyone that you think it may help. Give them a little bit of, you know, the background, a peek behind the curtain. What What is the reason why the foster care system is in crisis and why do so many kids stay in care and we cannot achieve uh, permanence for them. So I think Naomi had great insights into that. If you haven't yet, please join us on the Stable Moments Podcast Facebook group where we can stay connected. Go ahead and introduce yourself in there. Let us know what you're doing to end the foster care crisis. Remember, even just being a champion for the cause and letting people know that there is a foster care crisis helps raise awareness for this critical issue. We won't have another episode out till the end of December, so have a great holiday season and thank you for everything you do to end the foster care crisis.